Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. The race for mayor of Boston is heating up. With the easing of the pandemic, the six candidates are starting to crisscross the city more and more in person. It is a history-making field. Four of the six are women. All identify as people of color. Certainly not your father's Boston mayoral showdown. We've been trying to get to know the candidates here on the podcast, and one of them, City Councilor Anissa Asabi-George, is with us today. Welcome, Anissa. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time um, that you're taking to get to know us. And I love that opening line, like, not your father's, well, how'd you say, not your father's race? That's right. It's also not my father's race as well. I, I, it just reminds me of the, the exchange I had with my dad when I was very young and expressed an interest in politics and Boston politics specifically. And my father said, yeah, not in this city. So here I am. And I'm, I just love that that's part of your intro. There you go. And so there, you know, there is so much about the race that marks it as different from uh, Boston mayoral contests of old eight years ago only. Uh, there were two Irish Catholic men vying in the final election. This year, there are no Irish Catholic men run in, even in the running. Um, it's sort of an astounding change for a city that was really long defined by that demographic group uh, being the one that sort of held sway as the main power brokers. Uh, what, is that, what does that say to you? Well, I, I say um, we've come a long way, that's for sure. And I think it also speaks to the work that, um, you know, at least for myself, that I've been able to do on the city council and the, 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 the caliber of work I've been able to do on the city council. I think that we've got a strong bench. And when we create strong benches, we've got, you know, opportunities to um, lead in, in different ways. And, and that's what you've got before you. So not only are there four women in the field, but you all have been colleagues together on the Boston City Council. What's that been like out there uh, now sort of competing with your with your colleagues? Well, it's um, it certainly has created, I think, a very interesting dynamic. We all have, I think, great relationship as a group, as women, as women of the Boston City Council. We've tried over the years to spend some social time together to get to know one another personally. That was very important. You know, in 2016, when myself and Andrea took office with uh, then Councillor Presley and Councillor Wu, the four of us spent some social time together and, and we tried to make an effort and be very intentional to spend some time to get to know each other. And then when, um, who joined next? Uh, Lydia and Kim joined the council. The six of us tried to do it. And then when Liz and Kenzie and Julia joined the council, we tried to do some more of that and then COVID hit. But, you know, over, over the years, we've all been able to, I think, build um, some positive relationship. But I think we all, through those relationships, I think that will help us have a much more uh, productive and constructive and healthy campaign. We recognize the, the we recognize, I think, that it, it's so important in the city of Boston uh, to make sure that we're having that healthy dynamic, that healthy campaign, that, that healthy um, uh, dynamic over the course of, of the campaign. But we also see very clearly the differences, what we each bring to the table that's unique from one another. Um, yeah, no, it's, I, I, it's interesting. It's good. I, I think it's actually very good. And I've, you know, I've always obviously enjoyed their company as colleagues and enjoy their company, especially as we start to do a few things in person, in person. Right. Although I suppose, you know, there are going to be 
some elbows thrown and and uh you know uh when you say you know you're you you've been colleagues but you're also sort of showing uh kind of where you all stand and your unique position some of that means uh taking exception to what some of your colleagues may say, trying to distinguish yourself in the field. And uh, Oh, yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're all in this race to win it. I'm in right. it to win it. I'm in it to certainly um, demonstrate where the places are that I'm, um, I hold a different position than my colleagues and, and those that are in the race. And I, I think what we can do and what we will demonstrate we can do at least I'll demonstrate is when we do have differences, when we do demonstrate how, um, you know, my work and my performance and my effort as mayor will differ than my colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those differences need to be pointed out, but it doesn't need to be sharp elbows. It can, it can be done gracefully. It can be done professionally. It can be done tactfully. Politics, I think, for far too long has been too divisive, um, too negative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we have an opportunity and, and I certainly will take advantage of this opportunity to demonstrate to the people of Boston that we can do it in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And what would you say kind of uh, mainly does sort of distinguish you and your approach to the issues from uh, your fellow candidates? I know, I mean, some people have uh, sort of said you're more of the moderate in the race. People have talked about you uh, being the candidate that might be looking to inherit uh, former Mayor Walsh's base of support. You were, have been close with him, grew up uh, right in the same neck of Dorchester with him. Um, how do you, how, how, how would you just sort of describe yourself in ways that sort of stand out from the rest of the field in how you approach uh, the issues facing the city? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a great question. When I describe myself very much as sort of a pragmatic and practical um, elected official, legislator, leader, I very much lead based on my experiences in the classroom. I was a 13-year classroom teacher here in Boston. That is a unique experience when we look at the field. I have built a business here in the city of Boston and certainly lead with those experiences a front of mind. I'm the mother of four teenage sons who attend the Boston public schools. I, I certainly lead with uh, those experiences that, that I'm living every single day um, front of mind. And then I think about my work on the council and, and the leadership and the efforts I've put in when it comes to our schools and education, when it comes to you know responding to the needs of our residents who are experiencing homelessness or dealing with substance use disorder or don't have appropriate access to mental health care. And when we think about the work around supporting our businesses, especially during this time, but beyond COVID, how do we make sure that our um, economic base here in the city of Boston is thriving and growing and, you know, able to, you know, to, to exist and offer opportunity here in the city of Boston. I mean, those, my experiences personally um, have, you know, have continued to inform my work and then my work on the council as an at-large city councilor. You know, yes, I'm from Dorchester um, and I love the community that I grew up in, but as an at-large councilor, every community is important to me. And I've demonstrated that through my five and a half years now on the, on the Boston City Council and will continue to lead um, with that as a core value of mine. It is so important that as mayor of the city of Boston, that the residents um, see that I very much am engaged with them and their experiences in their communities and in both the struggles and celebrations that they face every single day. And um, 
So you grew up in Dorchester. I know in, even in your, uh, I think, campaign uh, uh, video kickoff, you call yourself a Boston girl through and through, but, you're, but your parents were not from Boston or even from the United States. Uh, can you just talk a little about that background and, and you know, what it meant growing up, how it shaped you, and uh, uh, I think, you know, just, just give a little of that. Yeah, no, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of my heritage. I'm very you know, proud to be a first-generation American and, and grateful that my parents, had, you know, although they have very different immigration stories, that they both uh, landed here in Boston, in Dorchester in particular, and made this their home. My mother is Polish. My grandparents, my grandmother at the age of 14 was taken from her home in Poland to work in a labor camp in Germany. My grandfather, my mother's dad, was in the Polish army, became a prisoner of war. They met in a displaced persons camp in Germany where my mother was um, eventually born. They immigrated to the United States when my mother was young, uh, ended up in Dorchester with a host Polish family and um, eventually made Dorchester their home and you know, grateful to, um, to them for you know, setting down those roots in, in my neighborhood, in my community and uh, creating a home um, for my mom, obviously, and then eventually, you know, that's the house that I grew up in. My dad is from Tunisia. Uh, he is an Arab. He is a Muslim. He came, eventually came to Boston in his early 20s and, you know, met my, met my mother and convinced her that um, a 90-day fiancé visa was a great trial run to build a relationship. And, you know, it was, I think it was a I know it was a difficult start, my mother being Polish Catholic, my father being an Arab and being Muslim, and you know, a new immigrant to the United States, there was certainly some early challenges, uh, especially when we think about the, you know, the, sort of the contrast in cultures, the significant contrast in religion and um, upbringing. But, you know, I'm just I'm so grateful that my parents, you know, continued to make Boston and make Dorchester in particular their home. I'd say the one very strong and common bond that they shared was a love for education. And, you know, that in my life growing up <clears throat> was front and center. Mm. And I, you know, I, we started talking earlier about my father's reaction when I was a teenager and a little bit of a student activist here in, in Boston, you know, as a student at Boston Technical High School, which is now the O'Brien. But eventually I made the decision to become a classroom teacher. And, and I taught, as you know, for 13 years at East Boston High School. But when I became a teacher, my dad was over the moon because for him to have, um, you know, his child, his daughter, I'm, I'm the oldest, you know, want to not just, um, recognize education as being important, but want to share that love with young people, with students to be in a classroom. Uh, my dad just was over the moon. Over the moon. It's, it's what he had worked so hard for. My dad was a security guard at Boston University, so I'd go to BU for free. And so, you know, I think he saw the, the results of his sacrifice, the results of the hard work that him and my mother um, you know, what they did to create those opportunities for me and my brother and my sisters, they saw that sort of come to life. And they were just thrilled when I became a teacher. But, you know, obviously, my mother was very much excited, too. But my father in particular, I think because of his life experiences, growing up very poor, uh, growing up um, in a place that was, um, was not, he didn't have access to any of the things um, that we take for granted here in the United States. And, and, and um, for him, just he just was over the moon. He was 
over overjoyed. He has not, he unfortunately is no longer with us. Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't get to see me uh, really em, embrace uh, um, this run for mayor and, and the success I've had on the city council. But I, I hold him close and dear to me through these experiences because I, I know he would be proud and I know that he would recognize the sacrifice that he made to create this opportunity for his daughter, his Arab daughter, uh, to be a candidate for mayor, to have had such great success and achievement on the on the Boston City Council, and and that so much of that work has been centered around education. I think he'd also be really excited and proud about that. And I, I had read about how you know he worked as a as a security guard at BU, and that afforded you uh, you know tuition benefits. You know, I guess a free ride, as we say these days. Did was that? I mean, did he land there specifically because of that benefit being available to his kids? Yes, he did. I was a sophomore in high school, and I think he saw, um, saw you know, he certainly saw college looming. And, you know, my dad from, from you know, my earliest memories of him, he's always been such a hard worker. He always had such, like, a tremendous work ethic and was always looking to um, improve for our family opportunity, improve access, you know, certainly worked hard to put food on the table. He was a a taxi driver. He was a waiter. He worked in a hotel. Um, He, you know, and eventually he became, he actually had a, a white hen pantry for a year. It was a really difficult and challenging year for him. And, um, when he decided to close the White Hen or return return the franchise uh, to White Hen, he said, okay, he goes, I need a stable job. I need to make sure that I can continue to support my family. And um, he saw college looming and had a, a friend that was a security guard over at Boston University and uh, took a job there. He worked always was working doubles, always, just always was working. That's, that's what I remember about my dad. And he, you know, I think he was thrilled the day I graduated from college, my first job out, I was making more money than him, but that was because of, you know, he, he recognized he needed to sacrifice for his kids. He needed to do these things and make, you know, these difficult decisions so that his kids could have a greater opportunity. It's why he left his family in Tunisia. It's why he, you know, never again saw his, um, his dad and, and for many years didn't see his brothers and sisters until, you know, you know, I remember the first trip going to Tunisia. Uh, we saved many, many years for this big family trip to go to go home and to, to visit and to make sure that his children. Um, and at that point, it was just me and my brother, but that we saw um, we saw the place that he came from and, and the experiences that made him um, the person he was. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you mentioned uh you know, sort of his being his Arab daughter. And I guess race and identity have become such big issues nationally uh, and certainly here in Boston, where they've long kind of loomed as a, as a, as a big issue, not always, you know, you know, casting the city in the best light uh, in the national view. So talk, talk a little bit how you, how you feel you fit in with that. And I know this has become a little bit of an issue, even in the mayoral race, there's been some grumbling about, uh, about your, you know, your identity as a, as a person of color. How have you, how do you sort of address that or, or, or view that whole thing? Yeah, no, you know, it's, I, I've always, I've always been asked this question, where are you from? And I, 
you know, I always, I, when I get that question, and obviously as an at-large city councilor, as a, as a public official, someone in the public space, I obviously get that question quite a bit um, because I am in the public space. And so I get this question, where are you from? And I know what it means, but I usually first respond by saying Dorchester. <laughs> That's not really what they mean. But I, I know that there's, you know, questions about who I am, what my identity is. And as an Arab, as an Arab woman, as the daughter of uh, an Arab who had a, I think a very difficult experience sort of settling here in the city of Boston, um, you know, identity has always been really important to me. And it's always been uh, a question of mine, uh, that I get a question towards me. And Arabs, especially when we think about race, when we think about ethnicity, when we think about uh, whether an, a person qualifies as a person of color, Arabs over time have always fell in this sort of in-between place where sometimes we count, sometimes we don't. And it's, you know, it, it, creates, um, it creates challenges with for those of us that are Arab, um, to, to not be seen sometimes for who we are and to not, to not have our, our stories and our experiences pre present or acknowledged or that the, the public isn't um, aware or appreciative. And, and some of that is, um, some of that is, because there's a great deal of hate towards Arabs. There is a, a great deal of discrimination towards Arabs. And it is, it is unfortunate because it, it often limits our ability as Arabs as, um, and as a, also within the Arab community, the, the diversity is very wide ranging, but it, it, it limits our opportunity to share our story, to, um, to, to be recognized, to be seen. And, you know, it's, it's also a conversation when we talk about being Arab, it's also a conversation around religion. It is also a conversation around where in the world uh, your family is from, whether it is from Africa, whether it is from the Middle East. And, um, you know, the, the conversations are, um, you know, they're, they're always, it, I always use those conversations as an opportunity to share my story, to share my history, to talk about my dad in particular, um, and to share, you know, the, 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 the way growing up in a uh, mixed household, both culturally, ethnically, and religiously, how that impacted me and how that continues to influence me um, and my work. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk a little bit. Uh, I mean, it's great to hear hear more about you and your uh, and, and your background. But we're in the middle of this race. Let's talk a little about some of the issues that are at the forefront of it. Um, uh, certainly, policing and uh, has has become a huge uh, focus of this race, just as it's become a big issue facing the country. Um, you've gotten a lot of donations. It's been noted from police officers. You recently won the endorsement of the former police commissioner, William Gross. Um, you know, in, in, you know, again, campaigns in the past, those would be seen as kind of a feather in your cap, a, a sort of sign of support from an important constituency group, maybe in the city. Now, I think there's some 
question, you know, whether that cuts both ways. Does that mark you as somebody sort of, you know, too, too beholden to police at a time when there's a lot of questions being raised about the conduct of law enforcement and the role of police, frankly, just broadly speaking, in society? Yeah, no, it, it certainly, you know, public safety is a big topic when we think about this campaign, as is education, as is public health, as, you know, as is economic development. Those are really important components and uh, places where we need to have public discourse and discussion. As it relates to public safety, as it relates to my work around policing, uh, I have been very much engaged in this work over the last almost six years now as a member of the Boston City Council, making sure that we are working um, every day day to make sure that we have a safe city. Public safety is one of the most important uh, topics um, and areas of concern that our residents have across the city. And that has been since the moment I took office and that has been in every one of our communities. I believe that we can have a city that is both safe, that we are creating um, a safe city and working towards a safe city, a, a city free from violence, free, free from trauma. Um, um, and at the same time, that we are doing it in a way that is just, that we are not discriminating against our communities of color in particular, that we are truly embracing and upholding um, the vision and the mission of community policing. I am a believer in community policing. I'm a believer in the work that we are doing as a city in partnership between our communities and our police department. And I will continue to do that as mayor of the city of Boston. I will say my, you know, I, I'm proud of the support that I have from former commissioner Gross and, and in his endorsement, he spoke to the relationship that we built over the years um, in my capacity as a city councilor to do the work and to hold those that are doing the work accountable. I have through, uh, through my time as an at-large councilor and will continue as mayor of the city to make sure that policing is done again in partnership with community, but that through that process, we are always looking for reforms, that we are always holding our police department and our police officers accountable for their responsibility to keep our neighborhoods safe and to perform their duties in, um, in, in a way that is uh, beneficial to our communities across the board. And that we are always working towards transparency, that we are always working again towards uh, accountability that's, that's centered to my work. But I believe for sure, in order to reach transparency and, and hold um, our police officers in particular accountable, that we need to do this work in partnership. That's really important to me. It's been, um, again, it's been how I've operated as a, as a city councilor, and it's how I will continue to operate as mayor of the city. And uh, I want to touch a little bit on education. I'd say sort of, you know, public safety and, and the schools are probably two of the biggest issues facing the city. They're the, two, I think, probably the, two, I think the two biggest buckets in terms of city spending. Um, and, mm -hmm. um, and you've cited your background as a high school teacher at East Boston High as something that sort of makes you uniquely qualified to lead the city at this time. Um, but I, I heard a recent forum on, on uh, education among the candidates. You ticked off all sorts of shortcomings in the city system, um, you know, from special ed services to sort of down the line. What's your, I guess, I mean, what's your diagnosis of really what ails the system 
broadly speaking, and what's the fix for it? It's not like people haven't you know talked about getting it, getting things right for decades. Just uh, th- uh, three years ago, there was a big study uh, done of 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 high schools, and in particular, and I think this is uh, important of the of the open enrollment high schools. This was by the Parthenon Group, and we we spend a lot of time talking about the exam schools. It sucks up a lot of the oxygen in the debate, but you know the high schools like East Boston High, where you taught don't get as much attention and that study was pretty devastating and saying you know about one in five kids in the open enrollment schools are is off track in terms of being on on a course to graduate and that the picture hadn't really changed much in a decade since a, an earlier study so first i would say every candidate for mayor uh, for generations every mayor has always said you know, give me the responsibility of the schools. Let me do this work. I will lead, I will change. And my response to uh, generations of this request and the call to judge one on the schools, um, I believe that that argument, that debate needs to end with me. As a former classroom teacher, uh, I think that I've got both the experiences and the understanding of our school system to actually do this work. I think that it's about time we want to fix the schools and we think about how important the schools are and the school system is to our city. It's time to hire a teacher for that for that job. What would that fundamentally mean? I mean, I don't uh, I know people talk about resources. On the other hand, when you look at per pupil spending, we're way, way above twenty thousand dollars per pupil. I twenty seven thousand dollars. Well, that's that. that is way above. So, I mean, it doesn't there's a lot of money sloshing around in the system. Maybe it's not being spent properly, but I, I think that the the kind of knee jerk reaction of we need more resources seems a little too easy and uh, an answer. Yeah, to- no, it's not. It's not about additional resources. We've got a school budget that's a billion and a half dollars. I mean, that is a significant amount of money, and I think that we've made some poor decisions on how we spend that money. I think that we've been inefficient with some of the decisions that we've made, and we've created some policies that have led to uh, these decisions that have, I think, have been you know, kind of wasteful with our spending. For every dollar that we spend as a school district, we should be able to answer the question, how does this benefit our kids? How do our children see this dollar in action? And absolutely, you mentioned special education. We have failed our kids who require special education services. And when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, I believe that that pipeline goes directly through our special education sub-separate classrooms where we have disproportionately placed black and brown boys in particular. We need to end that practice and make sure that we are doing uh, early interventions, that we are evaluating our kids the moment they enter our school buildings, that without delay, we are giving our kids the support services that they need. And, you know, for too long, we pushed that and we kicked that can down the road um, over the course of the school year. And our kids do not get the services when they need them. And when we don't give and provide our kids with the services they need from day one, they continue to fall behind and continue to fall behind. And then they become, in the end, a very expensive student to educate. And when we think about, you know, when we think about shrinking the achievement gap, when we think about bringing our kids that have fallen off track back on track, you know, and, and you know, we, we, that saying, we, our kids fell off track, they didn't fall. The adults in the room, the adults making the decisions pushed those kids off track. And, you know, it, some of that, especially that Parthenon report, 
we can trace some of the decisions that were made that led to the, the studies findings, especially around our high schools, especially around some of our alt ed programs in the district. We can chase that, trace that back to us as a district chasing very small amounts of Gates money. Um, you know, this is in the late 1990s, early 2000s. We chased a very small amount of money and upended what we were doing in our schools. And we lost kids because of that. We, we pushed them off track. And so through um, some significant reforms, through a real analysis of how do we reach our kids and answering the question about where we're spending our dollars, we can make right what we've done. And that's, you know, certainly improving special education services, making sure that we're doing early interventions, making sure that we are teaching literacy uh, across our early ed grades and that we have aligned curriculum. Like imagine that, that we streamline and select the same curriculum across all of our schools, that we do the grade reconfigurations, which through my work on the city council, we are seeing some movement in that, that we look at maybe better start times for our high school kids. COVID has pushed us into this place where our, our high schoolers in particular, you know, half of our high schools pre-COVID were starting before 7.30 in the morning. Because of COVID, we were able to adjust that a little bit. We can do this. We can actually do this work. And, you know, uh, you know there's lots of conversation around inclusion done right. There's a, a tremendous amount of work that needs to happen around our facilities. I look forward to, as mayor of this city, working in partnership with our congressional delegation and the Biden administration on getting these infrastructure dollars into our city and rebuilding and doing some significant renovations of the rest of our schools. I was excited uh, for former Mayor Walsh's uh, initial commitment of a billion dollars to the Build BPS effort, but that touches about 10 of our schools. We need billions of dollars to do the facility, the facilities upgrades, renovations, and rebuilds that our district so desperately needs. And I'm excited about those infrastructure dollars coming into this city because we need it and we need it today and tomorrow. Um, we can't wait. So I'm excited as mayor to, to work again alongside colleagues in government to get that done. But in terms of it, you know, spending dollars inefficiently, as we go ahead and try to, try to use some of that money and, and uh, improve the infrastructures, uh, we've seen huge enrollment decreases in the district over mm -hmm. the last years. Does that does would 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 finding more efficient ways to use those dollars also mean we have to look at closing some schools? Um, I don't. You know, the the conversation around closing schools or consolidating schools really needs to, for me, needs to be on the back burner. The first thing that we need to do is make sure that we have seats in communities where kids are and we have the right seats. So whether it's early ed, elementary or high school seats, that's a really important analysis that we have to do. We did that and we conducted that city, that study as a city a couple of years back and it was a flawed study. We don't have a ton of time to spend on studying. We can take sort of some of the core findings of that, um, of, of that study and correct it because, you know, and there were some efforts to correct the data that was uh, collected during that time. We can look at the enrollment shifts that have happened, especially over this last year. And we can look at where um, 
where our kids are across the district and, and make some changes. And then we can have some conversations, but we've got, we need to make sure that we have appropriate swing space as we do renovations. We need to make sure that schools are equipped with, you know, with art and music space, with science lab space, with athletic and gymnasiums, with appropriate classroom spaces, obviously, and, and COVID um, has really put this on, on blast for us. The, the need for high quality ventilation systems. I've been working as a city councilor to make sure our kids have access to clean drinking water. And we think about the, the lead in our pipes and the work that needs to happen still when it comes to, to water in our school buildings, all of that needs to be part of it. And the other piece, I don't, I don't wanna go without saying this, is within my first hundred days, as mayor of this city, we'll, we will have a strategic plan in place for Madison Park Vocational Technical High School. So before we start talking about closures and consolidations, we need to make sure that our kids that are in our district today have access to both high quality, rigorous academic course of study and wraparound services, full-time nurse in every building, which I've worked towards and, and we've achieved a full-time mental health professional in every building, which we are so close to achieving that. And I hope, um, and we'll continue to advocate through this current budget process that we do that. We are short, short 13 providers uh, work to make sure that we get that in this current budget and that we've got all of those, you know, library services. There's a direct correlation between student success and achievement, whether or not they have a library and a librarian in their school building. We need to make sure that our kids are in buildings that have uh, that provide opportunities to access uh, these experiences. Well, it's been a great conversation. Um, uh, I want to thank you so much, Anissa Asabi George, for uh, joining us on the podcast. No, thank you, and I look forward to talking a few more times between now and the preliminary, and then the final. I, I hope we will have a chance to do that. Um, so, you have been listening to another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.